And we've come as far in our study through the book of Genesis now as uh, chapter 26. Uh, and I was going to just fly through this chapter, a lot of it's kind of narrative. Um, but as I started looking at it during the week, there was so much here. Uh, there's so many little lessons that we're just going to kind of hopefully just enjoy uh, a little bit of time here. Uh, we're just continuing looking at the life of Isaac. Uh, we'll see how far we get. Uh, I've got a number of other chapters prepared, so we'll just keep going. If you know, We'll see how we get on. Genesis 26, verse 1. And it was straining with kind of a bang in a sense. And there was a famine in the land. Okay, we, we, we've been introduced to, to Isaac, of course. We, we've seen the, the children already uh, alluded to that, that Rebecca is pregnant. But now we thought that there's a famine in the land, beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. Now I'm going to talk in a minute about the famines that we see through Scripture. Uh, some interesting parallels there. But, you know, this is a major thing. It's so easy just to read this without kind of feeling the pain of it. You know, if we were in a position where we suddenly, we had no food, we had no resource to live on, you know, it, it pushes you to that kind of point and place of decision. And we're told, And Isaac went unto Abimelech, king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. And we're told that the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down into Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Now, I was looking at this and I thought, actually, it doesn't, the way it kind of reads here, I think sometimes we miss what's going on a little bit. Because looking at the, the, the words in the Hebrew, how this is actually given to us, that and that we have in the middle of the sentence, and Isaac went unto Abimelech. This is the, the result of what happens in verse 2. Because God actually appears to Isaac when this famine occurs and God says, don't go back to Egypt. And because of that, Isaac, being obedient, stays in the land, but goes to the Philistines and to Gerar. It's still part of the land. We'll look at a map in just a moment. So just to, to keep it clear that it wasn't that he'd gone to Gerar and was kind of wondering what he'd do. No, he'd already made the, the decision based upon God's instruction not to go down into Egypt. Okay, so he's chosen to be obedient to God, staying in the land. And it's interesting because we see a number of times in Scripture this whole repeated emphasis on not going to Egypt. Now, later, of course, we're going to find that Egypt comes to represent the world, a place of bondage. Of course, by the time we get to the time of Moses, which is yet future as we're studying this portion, we see all of those things. And God in Deuteronomy makes it very clear that when Israel were to set up a king over the land... It's interesting, by the way, that God intended them to set up a king. They just jumped the gun and got Saul rather than waiting for David, who was the one that God had intended. But God made it very clear that when you set up a king, don't let that king, we're given a whole list of things, multiply horses, multiply wives, or go down to Egypt. And of course, Solomon, the wisest man of all, does all three of those things. He multiplies wives, he gets lots of horses, and goes to Egypt to bring these things back. You know, interestingly, the wisest man on earth can still stumble and fall when it comes to spiritual things. Wisdom doesn't help you with sin. It's only God's grace. Uh, we need to make that very clear. You're not going to ration or reason in your own mind how you can overcome sin and then be faced with temptation and go, ah, I know what to do. You may know what to do, but it's the power to do that that's the problem. And only through God's grace can we then be obedient to that which we know to be right and true. So even Solomon messes up on that one and ends up with all of those things, those problems. 
In Isaiah 31 verse 1 we read this, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help, and stay on horses, and trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. You know, Egypt does, of course, represent the world in many respects. And that verse is applicable to us today, really, because there's all sorts of things that become like Egypt to us, places that we resort to. We kind of almost go back to that place of comfort. I mean, you remember the the Israelites when they're wandering in the, the wilderness. And although they hated Egypt, they couldn't wait to get out because of the persecution and so on because they were being treated very cruelly by the Egyptian taskmasters. It's not long before they started saying, oh, do you remember Egypt? Wasn't it wonderful? Do you remember the leeks and the garlic and all the food that we had? You know, the world has this way of uh, emphasizing the good bits and kind of allowing us to forget the bad bits. But, of course, the world will never be a place that will satisfy us, that will ever fulfill those longings that we have. And we can try running there as often as we want. It will never work. And this verse just says, God says, woe to them. It's just, it's so foolish, it's so dangerous to go back to anything that you once knew that was once part of your life or anything that you know to be not of God. Because the contrast is that we should be looking to the Holy One of Israel. We should be seeking the Lord. Well, praise God that in this context, Isaac is seeking the Lord and is obedient in this call not to go down to Egypt. But why is the command given to Isaac? Because all of those things we've just said really are yet future in regard to Egypt. Well, of course, you remember that Abraham had gone down to Egypt. And what had been the result? Hagar, remember? Abraham goes, Sarah is taken into the harem of Pharaoh when she's down there. And as typically would be the custom, she's given a handmaid to look after her. And when eventually Abraham and Sarah leave, that handmaid goes with them, that young lady by the name of Hagar to become such a problem for Abraham. And so God now gives Isaac this instruction. Isaac, very familiar, of course, with his own family history. J. Vernon McGee says this. He says, well, he had an example before him of his father who had run off down to the land of Egypt. And J. Vernon McGee says, this reveals the fact that like father, like son, sins are carried from father to son. You can talk about the generation gap if you want, but there is no generation gap of sin. It just flows right from one generation to the other. Generally, the son makes very much the same mistakes that the father did unless something intervenes. Or we could even add unless someone intervenes. Um, we need to cry out to God. We need to seek him. You know, there's no excuse that you can carry on being as you are because your parents were such. That, that's not good enough. Because with God's grace, we can be different. If we didn't have good parents, that's no excuse for us carrying on in a way that is not honoring God. So it's very clear that God gave this warning because we're apt to follow in the example of those that have gone before us. Obviously, in this case, for Isaac following in the footsteps of his father. If we look on a, a map, we see the, the area here. Of course, Moriah, you can see at the top, Moriah is the same place we refer to as Calvary, Jerusalem, the same area, same location. Mamre, that place that Abraham had dwelt for such a, a long time, that's where those visitors had come, uh, from where he oversaw the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You can see it in the distance, Sodom and Gomorrah, just being on the bottom end of the Dead Sea that you can see there. Uh, Beersheba, again, a place we'll see mentioned in a moment again. And... Uh, 
Isaac has now been living at this place of uh, Baal Hiroi. It's the, this, this well that was there. And it was referred to as the well of the living one that sees me. It's where he met Rebecca, his bride. But that's where they've been staying. And clearly the food has, has dried up because of this famine. And so they're, 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 they're brought to this place of, of questioning what they're going to do. They end up, as we've just seen, going to this area occupied by the Philistines who originally had come from Egypt after the, the time of the flood where the nations dispersed and they'd gone down um, and then moved up to the area of Cyprus. And from Cyprus, they'd come across to the mainland, uh, these, these Philistines um, and so on. You can trace the, the, the roots of them. But let's just talk for a second about famines because we see a number of famines in the land. There's seven, if you can refer to the natural famines that are recorded in the Bible that take place in the land of Israel. This is excluding famines brought about by military sieges. There was some of those as well. But these are natural famines. Of course, we've seen the one regarding Abraham in Genesis 12. The one we're looking at here regarding Isaac in Genesis 41. Of course, there's that famine that causes Jacob to send his sons down to Egypt to try and buy food. And that, of course, leads to them meeting up with uh, with Joseph. Um, and then the whole family end up going down there. In the book of Ruth, you're familiar, there's a famine in the land. And Ahimelech uh, ends up taking his whole family to Moab. Uh, interestingly, just a short time before that, Israel had been given this wonderful victory over Moab. And in all probability, Ahimelech was probably one of those soldiers that had gone on that expedition. He'd been, he'd seen the land. It was a great land. When there's a problem in Bethlehem, rather than staying or seeking God, he takes his whole family to this place that he'd just recently been at. And then we find that he dies, his sons die. And ultimately then, Naomi changes her name uh, to bitterness, as it's translated, and then comes back into the land. So another famine there. In the time of David, there's another famine um, that God brings upon the land because of the uh, the sin of Saul in the way that he treated the Gibeonites uh, and so on. Then there's that famous one that we know of in the days of Elijah, where Elijah, this is man of faith, just steps into the throne room of the king and says, it's not going to rain for three and a half years, it kind of walks out again. Incredible situation. And, and people sometimes talk about the, the faith that Elijah had, but his faith wasn't in his own ability or anything else. It was simply in God's word. When we talk through Kings, we, we focused on this for a while. Because Elijah simply went on the basis of what God had said. God had said, if you do not obey me, I will stop the rain. Elijah looks around. He sees the nation are in total disarray, not obeying God. and says, you know what? God is going to be faithful to his word. It's not going to rain for three and a half years. And we're told it didn't rain. It's not that Elijah had some supernatural power that he could stop up the heavens. He just knew that God was going to be faithful. We're told in the book of James, aren't we, that Elijah was a man just like us. He wasn't some superhero. He was just a man that believed God's word. And then there's another famine that we read about in the days of Elisha. So we've got these, these seven families. Just as an interesting aside, the first three and a half, if I can put it that way, are natural. There's no kind of specific reason for them that we're given. They're just famines that occur. The last three and a half, and the kind of Ruth is in there, is that kind of middle point, are, are all specifically in judgment because the people of Israel had turned away from God. And so God allows these famines to come upon them. And of course, that one with Ruth, it's kind of a bit of both. It was a natural famine, but it was also at a time when, during the book of Judges, people were moving away and just doing what seemed right in their own eyes. So it's interesting, we've got a three and a half split here. 
And I just think it's interesting because it seems almost as if we've got a model there of what happens during the tribulation, which is yet to come. That's detailed in the book of Revelation. The first three and a half years, we're going to see natural circumstances bringing about the judgment that God is going to allow. But it's natural things. And the last three and a half years, we see some really supernatural stuff going on. Stuff that can be not explained in any other way than this is God doing this. It's just interesting how that kind of seems to be a, a, a parallel. Families, though, as we mentioned a moment ago, always bring us that point of decision. Isaac here making that decision to, to leave where they were. Of course, in the New Testament, we've got that situation with the prodigal son in Luke 15. You know, he decides he wants his inheritance now and, and goes away and wastes everything. It's amazing how young people know everything until they're put in a position where they have to start making some decisions and they start to realize quite how tough life can be. And we've all been there, haven't we? Some of us probably still are. We still make those those wrong decisions at times. But he got to that place. He's ending up eating the pig's food and realizes this is crazy. It brought into that place of, of waking up, looking at the situation. You know, and again, whether it be famine of food or another type of famine in our lives. You know, all sorts of things can call us to cry out to God, and God will allow those circumstances. Chuck Misler makes this comment, I love this. He says, we can't conceive of a holy God wanting anything less than his very best for his children. And the very best he can give us is a holy character. I love that. God will allow all sorts of things in our life, if necessary, to bring us to that place that he can make us more like Jesus. That is the greatest blessing that we can experience and we can receive. There is nothing better than that, than to become Christ-like. To know what it's like to live by God's grace. So to walk in faith. And again, that's why God will allow famines. To bring us, just as with the prodigal son, to that place where we seek our Father. We're actually living right now in the days of another famine that was prophesied in scripture and it is forcing many to that point of decision we read in Amos chapter 8 verse 11 behold the days come says the Lord that I will send a famine in the land not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water but of hearing the words of the Lord what a famine we've got right now even in churches around this country there is such a famine of hearing the words of the Lord in one sense, we've got the problem on one hand where the words of the Lord have been corrupted and there are some really abhorrent new translations of the Bible coming through. All these kind of gender neutral type of translations, things that are supposed to be politically correct now and, and so on. And some of them just do absolute violence to the text of scripture. That's one issue. But of course, the, the real problem is that, that even from the pulpits. People are not being taught the word of God. It, it, it was sad. It was the same last year at Creation Fest and this year the same thing. We were looking after the, the resources. We had a stand down in the exhibition center and again one of the most common questions that I was asked is when can we have a Calvary Chapel in our area? That's not to say the Calvary Chapel have got everything right. Of course not. I'm not. It's not about Calvary Chapel. What they were saying was we want Bible teaching. We want a church that teaches the Bible. And so many of them were saying to me that they, they're struggling because they're in churches and they love the people. They enjoy the fellowship. 
But they want to grow. We've got the online school of ministry that's set up. And actually, the next semester starts in September. Uh, and I'll ask personally for, for prayers for me. I'm going to be teaching one of the uh, the, the, the sessions. Um, there's a nine-week course uh, just teaching on the life of David, which I'm really looking forward to doing. There's so much in David's life. And, you know, part of that course is uh, preparing people for ministry. Uh, and not, not necessarily to, to lead or teach any form of ministry. If it's something that appeals to you, then come speak to me. But the question a lot of people are asking me is, do you have any other kind of courses that are running where we can just go and learn about the Bible? And in one sense, I find it really encouraging that there's people wanting to know. I, again, after so many of those morning sessions, the, the teaching sessions, people coming out saying, oh, this is great, we love coming here because we get Bible teaching. And people were buying books about learning how to read the Bible, how to study Scripture. They wanted to know. And I find that, again, very encouraging. But it's such a sad thing that in so many churches, people are not being taught the Word of God. You know, they're getting lots of motivational talks, talks that will hopefully help you feel a bit better about yourself. But we've got prominent leaders, evangelical leaders, that are telling us that there is no such place as hell. And that God didn't really punish his son on the cross. And these ideas are just filtering through. Now, we're living in the days of a famine of hearing the word of God. We all have an onus and a duty to reach out to people, Christian, non-Christian, to let them know how important God's word is. And it is, by the way, a judgment from God. You see, we've rejected the word of God. As a nation, largely. You know, and so God has taken away the hearing of it from those who are not willing to diligently seek him. The same thing happened, of course, in the days of Jeremiah. Incredible book, Jeremiah. Incredible prophet. That those that were supposed to be teaching the word of God had been given over to all sorts of uh, motivational kind of teaching. God's not going to bring judgment. It's all right. Don't panic. You're fine. Jeremiah says they've rejected the word of the Lord, so what wisdom is in them? And they became incapable of of teaching or hearing. We carry on. We're flying through this. We're up to verse 3 now. Sojourn in the land, God said to Isaac, and I will be with thee. What a statement. What a statement. God is saying, stay in this place. It might not look great for now. It might not look like your ideal of what your your life was going to work out like be plunged into this time of famine. But God says, you know what? Stay and I will be with you. Well, what a a great word of encouragement from the Lord. You know, all those kind of self-help and motivational things to the side, this is really encouraging. Stay in the land and I will be with you. And look, look what God says. And I will bless thee for unto thee and unto thy seed I will give all these countries. And I will perform the oath which I swore unto Abraham thy father. And I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. And I will give unto thy seed all these countries. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because that Abraham obeyed my voice. And kept my charge and my commandments, my statutes and my laws. What a lovely promise that God is giving to Isaac. If he's just faithful, if he's just obedient, blessing be showered upon you. Yeah, you know, we did a study, didn't we, some time ago, last year, I think it was now, um, looking at Psalm 119. I just love 
Psalm 119 so much. You know, and it starts, Blessed are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies, that seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity, they walk in his ways. And thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. Then shall I not be ashamed that I have respect unto all thy commandments. I will praise thee with uprightness of heart when I shall have learnt thy righteous judgments. You see, all the way through these ideas, God's commandments, his statutes, his laws, his judgments, all these things throughout scripture. So God here to Isaac just repeats that threefold promise that he'd already given to Abraham. Firstly, regarding the land that it was going to be given to his seed. He says, all these countries. Secondly, the promise to the nation that I'll make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. And thirdly, the blessing. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. It's a global blessing for the whosoever. Anybody that would respond, that blessing is there. Now, looking at the map, of course, we've got the area of the Middle East as we know it, the river Euphrates, of course, and then down the, the southern part of uh, Israel into the Sinai Peninsula, you've got what's referred to sometimes as the river of Egypt, of this, this wadi, Arish, that's uh, down there. And Israel are promised in Scripture the whole of that land. Well, that's going to cause a little bit of a political stir, isn't it? But that's the area, scripturally, we're not given specifics about the north and the south, how far it will stand up or down. But that whole region, to the I mean, the Bible speaks about the river. It's not talking about the Jordan, it's talking about the Euphrates. The whole land is going to be given over to Israel. And Jesus is going to return, he's going to establish his throne, he's going to rule from Jerusalem over the whole earth. But Israel will be granted this land. The land that was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, will be reiterated to Jacob. It's incredible. We're singing one of those songs this morning. The nations of this world will bow before him. No longer will they doubt he's Lord. You know, it will be that time that I, Isaiah spoke about, the wolf, the lamb laying down together. The children will be able to play with the snakes. They'll be bringing home a snake. Mommy, look, it's a snake. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's going to be wonderful. Acts chapter 3 talks about the restoration of all things. God's going to put this world back as it was when he made it in the beginning. So many wonderful things that, that we read about in the book of Revelation that God accomplishes. One of the interesting things is that all the islands flee away. That implies that there will be just one landmass again. There's been all sorts of upheaval during the tribulation time. But originally there was one landmass before seemingly at the time of the flood everything broke up and we have the continents such as we do, to do, do today. But so many things. Most importantly... Satan will be bound for that period. And then there will be peace in Jerusalem. We're told to pay, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That peace will only come when the Prince of Peace himself is ruling and reigning. So some things there to, to look forward to. But these promises being reiterated now to Isaac. And we're told that Isaac dwelt in Gerar. And the men of the place asked him of his wife. It was a problem when people are interested in, in your wife. You should like concentrate on your own wife. Uh, he said, she's my sister. Interesting, look at this. For he feared to say, she is my wife, lest, said he, the men of the place should kill me for Rebecca, because she was fair to look upon. This is a, a young lady in her mid-sixties at this point. She's still very beautiful. And it came to pass that when he'd been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out at a window. And what this tells us is that Isaac was pretty much next to the king's place. 
He was obviously held in high esteem going there to start with. We already know that Abraham was a man of great wealth. That wealth has been passed on to Isaac. Remember, Isaac received all that Abraham had. Abraham put together that army of 318 trained servants to go and rescue Lot. Well, Isaac has all of that. And as he comes to this land, the king of Gerar here, Abimelech, welcomes him in. And gives him a place right next to his own house. Come, you come and, come and live here. But then we find that Abimelech looks out of the window and he says, And saw, and behold, Isaac was sporting with Rebekah, his wife. Now, if you don't know what that means, it's the kind of activity that probably you shouldn't be engaging in with your sister. And at this point, he realizes that Rebekah is more than just sister. We read on, and it says, And Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, of a surety, she is thy wife. And how saith he, thou, that she is my sister? And Isaac said unto him, because I said, lest I die for her. Interesting statement. And Abimelech said, what is this that thou hast done unto us? One of the people might lightly have lined with thy wife, and thou should have brought guiltiness upon us. Some really interesting things come out of this. We're just going to explore briefly. Now, so many commentators will tell you that when Abraham did this, when he first went down into Egypt... And later when he went to Abimelech, and now Isaac doing the same thing, it was just pure deception. And yet, interestingly, God never speaks of these events as being bad. God never condemns Abraham or Isaac for deceiving. Why? Well, it's interesting, and I'm very grateful to Bill Cooper in his study of the book of Genesis, and the authenticity of the book of Genesis, for just exposing this and actually looking elsewhere this has been corroborated now a number of times but there's a custom in Mesopotamia to make a wife a legal sister so you may have a wife but then you could legally make her as your sister in a sense kind of adopting her into your family and she would legally be given that title of sister it would appear that neither Abraham nor Isaac were telling a lie. Now, this has come to light with the discovery of the Newsy tablets back in 1925 through to 1933. Northern Iraq, these tablets, many, many, a couple of thousand tablets were discovered um, with lots of rules and laws and customs of the day, which has shed an awful lot of light on the things we find in Scripture, just corroborating that what the Bible says about so many of the things we read in Genesis were absolutely true. And this is a really interesting one because Abraham, as we've mentioned, seems to then apply this in Genesis 12, verse 13. Also, that's the Egypt trip. And then Abimelech in uh, Genesis 20, verse 2. Isaac seemingly now follows suit. The interesting thing here is that by doing so, the wife is then elevated to be joint heir with her husband. Why is that significant? Well, I don't know whether you see it, but there's a wonderful model here. You see, because that is what Christ has done with his wife, the church. What is it the scripture tells us? Let's look. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14 through to 17, we're told, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Oh, and by the way, any translation that translates that children of God to try and make it seem politically correct, scrub it. It should be sons of God. That's what the text says. And that's what it means. Why? Because the sons were the ones who were given the inheritance. 
that was the culture the way it was. Whether you like that or not, that just that is the way it was. So by this verse and many others in John, uh, 1 John chapter 3 and so on, where it speaks of us becoming sons of God, whether you're a male or you're a female, that's a great thing because it's saying that you have been given the place of the firstborn. That's what it's saying. It is important. That you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And notice this, if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. You see, Christ has made us joint heirs. Yes, we are to be as the church, we are to be his bride, we've been given that position of being joint heirs just as Abraham did with Sarah and just as Isaac did with Rebecca according to that rule that law that they would have been familiar with of course down in Egypt they wouldn't have been familiar that's why Pharaoh's surprised when he, he, he encounters this or yet he sends Abraham away with great gifts again Abimelech from their cultural background wouldn't have understood this law and yet also seemingly still honors Isaac as a result. In First Peter 3, 7, we read this, Likewise, you husbands dwell with them, speaking of the wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, speaking in a physical sense, and as being heirs together. No one's better than anybody else. The Bible, despite what people try and claim, is not sexist, it's not in any way derogatory towards women. It actually elevates us all to the same position. We are heirs together of the grace of life. That your prayers be not hindered. It's a lovely picture that we see. Now Isaac, of course, we know is a type of Christ in many ways in Scripture. Of course, we've got that great uh, portion in Genesis 22 we've already studied. Look at the akedah as it's referred to, that, that tying or the binding is what the Hebrew word uh, akedah means, uh, as Isaac was bound to the altar. Uh, and of course, we see there that he was carrying the wood on his back just as Jesus carried the cross. He, he was climbing up to Calvary just as Jesus climbed to physically the same location. Again, Isaac was willing to lay down his own life at his father's request, Jesus being willing to do the will of his father. And of course, symbolically, Isaac is effectively raised to new life on the third day, just as Jesus was. So there's a number of ways that, that Isaac fulfills his model. But there is, of course, a, a clear difference between Christ. And that is that Christ was willing to lay down his life for his bride. And we see in this example here, the model kind of break a little bit because Isaac was not willing to die for his wife. The reason he kind of uses this law, seemingly not lying, but maybe not quite giving all the facts, was because we see he was frightened that he might die. Well, Christ wasn't afraid to die for his bride. He willingly gave, down, gave, gave up and laid down his life for his bride. Well, the challenge here, of course, for the men is that that's how Christ says we should love our wives. We should be willing to lay down our lives for them. So just to conclude this, that there's no perfect models. They always fall short. You know, there's lots of these models and these types. You know, and, and there is a, a little sub-lesson here, and that is to be very wary of role models. You know, whoever it is in your life as a Christian that you look to, that you are encouraged by, that you're blessed by, it could be Christian artists, musicians, it could be bands, it could be teachers or speakers or whoever. 
be careful because those models only go so far. And none of them can attain to the perfection of Jesus Christ. We read verse 11, And Abimelech changed, oh, sorry, charged all his people, saying, He that touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Interesting again, that just as his father Abimelech had done, the title, by the way, Abimelech is, just means king for Philistines. That's the title that was passed down. And his father had responded to Abraham in the same way. So Abimelech now, the son of that one, uh, reacts in a way to show that he has this knowledge and reverence of God. Interestingly, back at that time, not long after the flood, there was such a knowledge of the one true God in the world. We talked last week, even even in China, they acknowledge, they worship, they sacrifice to the one true God. Around the world, that knowledge was there. And clearly here, although they no doubt had other practices and customs and things and religion they had got into, there was still the knowledge of the one true God. And then Isaac sowed in the land and received in the same year a hundredfold. What a blessing. And the Lord blessed him. And the man waxed great and went forward and grew until he became very great. Again, so easy just to read through this chapter and miss kind of this. So much really is focused on Abraham. And then we get to Jacob. And of course with all the sons it becomes really... And so often we miss this bit with Isaac. That he truly was an incredible character. Again, showing obedience by staying in the land of the first place that God richly blesses him here. And we're told for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and great store of servants. And we're told, and the Philistines envied him. We see with the Jews actually through history how God has blessed Israel and people have then blamed Israel for all sorts of things. That Part of the, the problem during uh, leading up to the Second World War and, uh, and so on with the way that the, Philist- the, the Jews were blessed. Of course, a lot of it was down to the the rules that they followed from the Torah, that they didn't seem to get the diseases and so on that other nations did. And so they weren't allowed to do many of the jobs that other people would have done. And they were forced out. They ended up, of course, as we know from history, getting into banking and other professions, which initially were not considered anything great. And of course, you see how God then used that as well. People will certainly look on with envy when they see God blessing. And they'll try and find a quick way to obtain that blessing. Again, just as we said earlier, God doesn't highlight those actions of, of Isaac being wrong. But we're told as a result of this envying, for all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines had stopped them and filled them with earth. And Abimelech said unto Isaac, Go from us, for thou art much mightier than we are. And Isaac departed thence and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerah and dwelt there. And Isaac digged again the wells of water which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham. And he called their names after the names by which his father recalled them. And Isaac's servants digged in the valley and found there a well of springing water. Interesting here. You can't rely on that which was done previously. You know, those wells that have been dug in Abraham's time, Isaac now is having to redig them himself. And I think maybe uh, it's not stretching it too far to, to say that there's a real lesson in here that you can't rely on living water being passed down to you. You know, each one of us has to go out and find that for themselves. And it's so encouraging, it's such a blessing to see these young people 
coming to that place of realizing they want to follow Jesus for themselves. That's what we want to see. Because you can't rely on something your father did or your parents did. We read in John chapter 4, the account of the woman from Samaria. There cometh the woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me to drink. And then jumping on to verse 10, Jesus answered and said unto her, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that said to thee, give me to drink, thou would have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. And then in verse 14, but whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. In Abraham's time, and Isaac and so on, you know, it was a really important thing to go searching for those wells of water because, of course, it meant life. Well, we don't have, certainly in this country, we don't have that problem with trying to find water. We go into the kitchen, we turn the tap on. But, you know, there's still that need for every individual to go and search for these wells of living water that, of course, only found in Jesus. And Jesus says that if we drink of the water that he gives, that thirst will be over. Not a physical thirst, but that spiritual thirst. There's a great account we have in Luke 16 that speaks about the, the rich man and Lazarus. And, of course, Lazarus dies, goes to Abraham's bosom. The rich man goes down to, to Hades. And he's there in torment and so on. And do you remember the request? He says, please send Lazarus back that he may get a cup of water. That he may just dip it on my tongue. What he's saying is that he was thirsty. He was thirsting. And yet, his physical life was over. He no longer had a tongue. You see, the point of that is that in that situation, that thirst just became magnified. He was trying to express a way of, of saying... How do I satisfy this thirst? Of course, the only way of satisfying that thirst is in Jesus Christ. As Jesus says here, the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up to everlasting life. And we're told that the herdmen of Gerard did strive with Isaac's herdmen, saying, the water is ours. And he called the name of the well Isek because they strove with him. And he did another well and strove for that also, and he called the name of it Sidna, and they removed from thence and digged another well. And for that they strove not, and he called the name of it Rehoboth. And he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And he went up from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared unto him the same night. Now, God has spoken to Isaac a number of times, but this is significant because now the Lord appears to him in the same ways that he appeared to Abraham and so on. Uh, the Lord appeared unto him in the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee and will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And we're told this, look at this. And he builded an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants digged a well. You know, he's come through this journey, learning to trust God, that God would provide for him, that God has blessed him. But then comes to this place of God appearing to him. And we find that for the first time we, we see in Scripture that Isaac built an altar. This place of sacrifice. These wells, just to mention quickly, uh, the names, Isaac means quarrel, Sitna means opposition, Rehoboth means wide places where they finally 
get this well that there's no contention over. Of course, Isaac is the one that's moving all the time. And God is the one that's always providing for Isaac. But the last time we see Isaac at an altar, he was on it. Do you remember? Now after hearing God's call, after this striving for water and coming to a place of rest, he hears God's voice blessing him again. It's just wonderful to see how God brings us to that place of sacrifice, of understanding the necessity of that blood of an innocent substitute. That's where real peace comes. Then Abimelech went to him from Gerar and, how do we pronounce this? Ahazath. If uh, Matt, Matt, you're thinking of a name, that, that could be a good one. One of his friends, and Phicol, the chief captain of his army, and Isaac said unto them, Wherefore come ye to me, seeing ye hate me? So Isaac said, Why have you come? And, sent, and you sent me away from you. And they said, We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee, and we said, Let there now be an oath between us, even betwixt us and thee, and let us make a covenant with thee. So now Isaac's got so big, so strong, so powerful, they said, Can, can we be friends, please? That thou will do us no hurt, as we have not touched thee, and as we have not done unto thee, sorry, as we have done unto thee nothing but good, and have sent thee away in peace. Now thou art the blessed of the Lord. And he made them a feast, and they did eat and drink. You know, the scripture says, doesn't it, that when a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. Isn't that what we see here? So they have this feast together, and they rose up betimes in the morning and swore one to another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. And it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him concerning the well which they had digged, and they said unto him, We have found water. And he said, oh, sorry, and he called it Sheba, therefore the name of the city is Beersheba unto this day. Again, it's a place that Abraham had already been, they'd already found water in the past, they're just reopening these old wells. But again, this living water effectively is coming out, this life-giving water. And we're told, and Esau was 40 years old when he took a wife, or took to wife Judah, the daughter of Beri the Hittite, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, which were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. And that sets us up for the next chapter, which we will look into next week. So read ahead, chapter 27, as we carry on looking at the life of Isaac, and we go into, really start to look at these boys now, uh, and we start to look at the whole issue of predestination and free will and all those uh, subjects start to, to come out. So we'll unravel that more next time. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father God, we do thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word, Lord, for the lessons that are there. And Father, thank you for those times of famine in our lives. Father, where we are brought to those places of decision. Lord, where we are sometimes forced to seek you. Father, thank you for reminding us, Lord, that we can't use it as an excuse, the sins of our parents or of those that have gone before us. The Lord, each one of us can respond to your call in our lives and we can walk in obedience before you by your grace. The Lord, it's not about our effort, not about our striving, Father, it's about your grace working and providing. And Father, we just thank you, we see how you blessed Isaac's life and recognize also, Lord, that you are a God without partiality and those blessings I promise to each and every one of us if we walk faithfully, humbly and obediently with you. Lord, may we not those strive and seek the blessings. May we seek the giver of the blessings. May we seek Jesus. Lord, the author, the finisher of our faith, the one who gives us that living water that satisfies every thirst. 
And Lord, we just thank you for these things. Lord, impress them upon our hearts, we pray. Lord, be with us through this coming week. And Lord, may we shine brightly for you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.